Blog Talk Radio. Today, Friday, March 2nd, 2018, it's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from my new studio in Boca Raton, Florida. As you know, I will take your calls anytime during the show at 215-383-5748, or tweet me your questions to at Stu the Wine Guru, or go to my Instagram page, at Stu the Wine Guru, and DM me your questions for me or my guest tonight. You can also go into our live chat room here on my show page, along with other wine enthusiasts, and ask me any questions you like. Uh, if you'd like to ask some questions of my guest, you can do so, and I will try to see if I can get them answered for you. Now, just want you to let you know that there's a chance that I can't get all questions answered due to the time constraints, but I will do my best. I want to thank you to all the listeners for supporting and getting the word out about the show, which is this year, by the way, enters its ninth year of broadcasting. Yeah. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. It just goes to prove that people of the world may not agree on everything. But when it comes to wine, we can all come together with our similar interests about it. If you want to find out more about me, you can go to Google and search Stu the Wine Guru. There you Find the websites, videos, articles, shows, and where I'm currently traveling to in the world in pursuit of wine, food, and happiness. Legendary, masterful, award-winning, unsurpassed quality, unique vintners, a work of art in a bottle. Why am I saying all those things? These are just some of the words that describe the wine my guest produces and the wine company he works for. I'm speaking of Michael Salachi and Opus One Winery. Michael will join me shortly to discuss how he makes such incredible wine. Call in at 215-383-5748 and join in on the conversation. A quick update as to what events you can join me at in the upcoming months. April 7th at Meisner Amphitheater in Boca Raton. I'll be covering the 16th annual Boca Bacanal Wine and Food Festival. I've been to it, uh, I don't know, five years, six years going. It's always good, you know, wine and good food. Go to the Boca Bacanal. I'll give you the address, bocabacanal.com. That's B-O-C-A-B-A-C-C-H-A-N-A-L.com for more information and to buy your tickets. Read my latest article in Simply the Best Magazine on Wine Innovations. It's on newsstands now. Barnes & Noble, bookstores, or go to simplythebestmagazine.com. That's S-I-M-P-L-Y-T-H-E-B-E-S-T magazine.com to read the online version. So now, with all the self-promotion out of the way and without any further ado, let me 
bring on my illustrious guest for the evening, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Salachi. Hi, Michael. Hi, Stu. How are you? Good evening. I am fantastic. I want to thank you first and foremost for returning as my guest tonight. It's uh, it's great to have you back. It's it's a pleasure. I, I always like uh, being in Florida, uh, either in person or over the waves. <laughs> Okay. Uh, isn't that the beauty of the internet? It's like you can be basically anywhere you want to be. You know, you can even say you're there. It doesn't even have to. No one, no one would know that you're not here, Michael, sitting next to me, across from me, with a, you know, glass of wine. Um, Michael, well, I do have a glass of wine. I would expect that. I mean, and uh, <laughs> should I say it's it's Opus One, or is it something else that you want to let our uh, viewers and uh, listeners know about? Well, I thought you you might talk about the 2014. So I I, I went and got a glass going to. Uh, from the partners room. I'm Absolutely. Way, so that's what I have. I'm going to ask you a, a request first. So okay. Michael, for the two people living under a rock somewhere in the world who have never heard of Opus One Wine, you want to give them a quick uh, history? Sure. In 1970, Baron Philippe de Rothschild, whose family owned um, owned still. Chateau Mouton Rothschild um, had this fantastic idea to propose, propose to make a joint venture with a California vintner. So he traveled to uh, Maui, where the vintners were meeting, and met several. And when he met Mr. Mandavi, he thought he would be the perfect uh, partner. And like most things in my world, it takes about seven or eight years for a plant or a, uh, an idea to bear fruit. So it was in 1978 they got together at Poyak, at Mouton, to talk about the joint venture. And they spent time in the vineyard, time in the cellar, and uh, just chatting, getting to know each other. Mr. Mandavi, uh, an American entrepreneur, thought that perhaps Baron Philippe had forgotten about this idea because he thought they should be talking about business first, then they can get to know each other. Baron Philippe was thinking, my family bought Mouton in 1853, we're going to be in this business forever. Let's make sure we get along with our potential partners. And uh, so he was trying to get to know Mr. Mandavi. And at the end of dinner that night, he asked Mr. Mandavi if he was interested still in this joint venture. And Mr. Mandavi said, yes, of course. And so Baron Philippe said, let's, um, let's meet tomorrow morning in my office. And his office was his bedroom. And we have a photograph of Baron Philippe in bed in his silk pajamas with a breakfast tray gone uh, with some papers on it, hunting dog curled up on the bed at his feet, and Marcy Mandavi taking notes. And in one hour, they outlined the basic uh, principles of Opus should be a classic red wine made from Bordeaux varieties. It should be a reflection of the two partners. And third, it should be unique and different from the two partners. And started Mm -hmm. first vintage 79, first vintage at this winery at, at Opus One, nineteen ninety-one. Now, may I correct me if I'm wrong? It was not called Opus One when it first came out. It was Napa Madoc, correct? Correct, that's correct. And it took a while before they agreed on a name, uh, because you know names, words have double meanings, and so something that seemed very innocent in French uh, to the French uh, had some double meanings that um, made the Americans chuckle and vice versa. And then finally, uh, Baron Philippe came up with Opus because uh, it would be their uh, a work of art. And a couple of days later, he 
called Mr. Mandavi back and said, how about Opus 1? It'd be the first of um, many things we do together. And that's where where the, the name came from. And the rest of history. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to let my listeners know that I just got my review bottle of the latest vintage 2014 of Opus 1 yesterday. I uh, cracked it open, not literally, but uh, opened it up and decanted for about about 25 minutes. I gave it um, and drank a glass. And here are my, here's my impression. So for a young wine, because naturally this vintage is, is young and new, um, it, as all Opus 1 will do, it will age extremely gracefully over the next 20 to 30 years, like, you know, a, a great French Bordeaux would. Uh, I found it to be very fragrant on the nose with, uh, I had hints of cocoa, I had some cassis, I had some allspice, a little leather. Uh, very, and upon, you know, drinking it and taking my first few sips, it's very smooth. The, the tannic structure was very, very low, very silky uh, on the palate. Uh, I got dark fruit. I got, uh, of course, the spice notes kind of followed through from the, the nose. Uh, very consistent from the point of entry through the mid-palate and the the finish as I think every opus I've ever had was very nice and lingering and long. Uh, definitely balanced fruit. Nothing was put off kilter uh, in, in the tasting process. And nothing jumped out or was, you know, uh, overbearing that I found on it. So that's kind of, you know, kind of what I felt. I mean, I, I, I think I've always felt that it, it you, we hold as we should opus to a little higher standard. Uh, and uh, I don't think you've, in, in the, the ones, the vintages of I, I've had, I've been lucky enough to have it, I can say starting back maybe, maybe 07. Uh, I mean, I know that's not, you know, far back, but, uh, it has never disappointed. Uh, it's just drunk really, really well. So that's my, that's <laughs> those are my my notes for you. Um, let me know, let me let me uh, let me let the listeners know who are new to this show how this works. So I have questions for you. My followers on social media have sent in questions from all over the globe. We have callers that could call in here with questions as well. I have a live chat room that I've opened up. I want to let everybody know that you need to go into the live chat room if you're physically on the show page right now. Uh, other wine enthusiasts go in there. You can ask questions from there as well, live during the show, and I can try to you know, ask Michael of it, uh, uh, time permitting. Um, and if you've never listened to this show before, this is live radio. Anything can happen. Michael has had no pre-interview questions given to him. Am I correct on that, sir? <laughs> That's correct. That's the way I like it. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm doing it like a magic show. You've never met me before, right, <laughs> sir? You've never seen this dollar that I had uh, given to you earlier, right, sir? Um, so, Mike, so he does not know what the questions are going to be uh, or asked in advance. I have asked uh, for questions from different followers all over social media. I've got questions of my own as well. So... Um, if you're listening and you've submitted a question and I don't get to it due to the time constraints, please understand. That's kind of what happens. Um, so, Michael, hold on to your seat because in no particular order, here comes the questions. Uh, okay. The first Instagram question I have is from Julia Satin. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. 
from Padova, Italy. Uh, and her question is, why did you become a winemaker? I'm sure you've got ah. this a million, million times asked. But, you know, she wants to know from Italy, so. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I decided that I wouldn't go to university until I did. So I started traveling. I went to um, to Hawaii for a weekend and stayed there camping on a beach in Maui for two months. Went on to Japan, through Asia, Southeast Asia, made my way across to France. And when I arrived in France, the only French I knew was Bon Voyage. I looked up a French woman who I had met in Tokyo, and she said, if you want to learn to speak French well, earn money and um, and eat well, you should pick grapes. So got a haircut, borrowed a car, drove out in the countryside in Muscadet near Nantes, drove mm-hmm. into a domain, and there was a fellow who was loading sacks of sugar into the back of a van, and I walked up to him and said, bon voyage. No, I said, um, I would like a job picking grapes. And he made me understand that if I helped him finish loading the truck and and delivered it, uh, that he would get me a job. And he did. And it was wonderful because I fell in love with two-hour lunches and wine. And uh, I'll never forget um, the first three nights I dreamed in gibberish because I knew everything that people were everything I was doing during the day it was very clear what I needed to do, but I didn't understand the words. And okay. uh, it was a fantastic experience. Now, when I arrived in France, I had de- decided that I was going, what I had seen when I went through the third world and traveled, I wanted to become a kindergarten teacher because hmm. uh, you see so many young children and you want, you know, I knew that at the age of five or six that it'd be, uh, you could have an incredibly positive impact on someone's life. Um, but I decided to, to go into viticulture and winemaking. But I will tell you that um, I do um, oversee vineyards and I make wine, but I also feel sometimes I'm a kindergarten teacher. Interesting. That's, uh, I, I think it's probably the, the, the uh, inner teacher, I guess, in, in you, that you know, once you get to a certain level of you know, producing wine, uh, I, I would imagine it's got to be in you to want to pass that down uh, to other people, enologists and vintners, and you know have them learn from what you've learned. I mean, is that does that make sense? Uh, yes, and and we what we do here is an open book. When when winemakers or viticulturists come from other parts of the world or other parts of Napa Valley, we tell them exactly what we do. They're, we don't hide anything. And right. we we use our um, we have interns every year. Mm-hmm. Some of those interns, like Jean Dangeois, who's now um, making Claire Mion, uh, did three internships and then eight years with me as a full time job, and and then became the winemaker at Claire Mion. Um, Natalie Jure, who's our director of viticulture, I interviewed her when she was pulling hoses at Erasmus in Chile. And she did mm-hmm. two internships with us and now is in her third full-time position since 2004. So I think it's really important to, um, uh, to, to collaborate, challenge people, and understand that when you mentor people, you should learn as much from them, if not more, than they learn from you. Hmm. I like that. Uh, I, I do have to uh, just let the listeners know of the uh, celebrities who listen in, who have, have uh, done some bumpers here for me. 
these are not actually the real celebrities. I have to say that legally. <laughs> but uh, John Ratzenberg. Hey, hi, this is uh, John Ratzenberger. When I'm not doing voiceovers for movies or doing commercials, I'm listening to Stu the Wine Guru. I suggest you do the same. <laughs> yes, and, and no actual celebrities were uh, u- utilized <laughs> in the making that. By Pardon. the way, I mean, if I give away the secret, that was me. But anyway, yeah. uh, moving on. Yeah. So my <laughs> first question for you is, what, what grape varietal do you believe needs more attention here in the U.S. that, you know, seems to get it elsewhere in the world, but not here? Um, I would say um, Pinot Noir. I mean, it does get a lot of attention, but I'm not sure it gets the right attention. Um, Pinot Noir is the most, to me, the most uh, fickle and difficult grape variety to work with. Um, And I I think it's fascinating. And I, I think the key to actually most wine grapes most most wines is to really try to find try to allow that grape variety to give you a sense of time and place where it comes from and when and sometimes i think um well wines are are uh, grapes are a little overripe and don't necessarily give you a sense of where they came from but maybe the personality of the person who who made them so i think pinot and then I I think Sauvignon Blanc is um, is is maybe not disappearing, but it's not as visible uh, as I believe it once was, and I think that's just a beautiful wine grape. Interesting, yeah. You know, I would I actually would agree with you. Um, you know, I I think the French make it uh, beautifully, very elegantly, and I think we when I say we, as if it's my, myself, as if I'm actually making it, but um, we here in the United States, and let's say California, um, I, I think it's an, a very interesting expression. Uh, and as you taste it in different parts of the world, uh, you notice how versatile this grape varietal is. N- you know, w- no matter where you plant it, it actually tastes completely different. Whereas I do notice, you know, certain Pinots, in Oregon, for obvious reasons, definitely have a Burgundian style to them and a Burgundian expression. And, you know, so that's, that's why I kind of find that the Sauvignon Blanc definitely um, is very versatile and needs to be, I think it definitely could use some more attention. Um, the next question I have here is from Jeff Osborne out of Toronto, Canada. And his question is, Michael, at the early stages of a modern, he puts this in quotes, modern Napa, with the trend towards leaner, more balanced wines, do you have any intention to jump on board and adjust your approach or style of your wines? And that was Jeff Osborne from Toronto, Canada. Thank you for the question. Um, well, like I, I was speaking earlier just a minute ago about making wines that express time and place, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm making wines that I think Robert Mondavi and Baron Philippe would, like, would have liked us to make here. And we have some just amazing vineyards uh, to work with. We have four estate vineyards, um, two in the in Tokelon and two more on the Tokelon fan. So soils fan. So um, we're we haven't veered. Um, we haven't tried to follow any wine writers or trends. We try to stay true to that uh, idea of, of making a wine uh, that is a reflection of the estate. So uh, right. You, we will make a lean wine like in 2011 because uh, 2011 was 
cool and a little wet, and we tend to pick a little early, earlier than most people. Um, we're picking at the fresh fruit stage and a little into ripe fruit. Sometimes we pick a little early and we get some herbal notes, and sometimes we're bringing in certain blocks a little later, so we're getting some uh, more blueberry plum uh, um, characters. But that would be a style that I think would would be what he was re- what Jeff was referring to as a lean a leaner wine. But that's mm-hmm. because it was 2011. Right, and that particular vintage uh, was very different from. It, its predecessor and post. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, this and which leads me into this next question, which is kind of interesting. This question is from Hillary Zio from New York City, and her question is: How has the style of your wines changed in the past fifteen years? And she also adds, "Thanks and have a great show." Thank you, and Michael. Yes, thank you for the question, Hillary. Uh, I believe that um, we've just refined this expression of our estate more mm-hmm. and more, and really, it's it's really in in, in pers- you know pursuing balance from the way we plant the vines to the way we pick the vines, the harvest decisions that when we decide to harvest and as we make the wine, and the idea is to make a wine that is approachable when it's released because it's so well-balanced, and it ages because our wines are all um, um, aged in 100% new French oak barrels, and, and you don't really get, um, Stu, when you described the 14, which is our current release, you didn't mention oak, and that's be- for a couple reasons. Maybe your your comment about cocoa and some allspice um, could be mm-hmm. the reflection of the oak, but there's not an, uh, oak is not masking uh, the characters of the variety or the place. Part of that is the way we make the wines, you know, pursuing balance. But the other is that we treat even our suppliers as member as as members of our teams, and they are asked to make barrels that are like a pedestal upon which we put the wine. So they can't mask the wine; they support it. They add a nuance to the wine, and Got it. and um, and so I think that. That's definitely why we're able to continue to refine this. Yeah, uh, and I guess it's a constant process. I mean, it, it probably just never stops. You know, you're you know once you find one thing that you that you like about a particular vintage, and every vintage is different. Naturally, you you yes. say I'm sure you make notes, and it's like okay, let's see how that can apply or may not apply to the next vintage. You know, um, a, a good example. If if yes. uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, um, no, when I first came here, I tasted um, wine that was made by Patrick, um, Lucy and Siano and Tim Mandavi from 79 to 84. And then Patrick Mandavi and, and uh, Tim and uh, Patrick, sorry, Patrick Leone and Tim right. Mandavi from 85 to 90. Then 91, they were at this facility and Jean-Vive Janssens was involved. She was the production manager. So there were three real phases of, of wine in my mind. And I kind of tasting across the three eras, I came up with a caricature of what I felt was classic opus. In 2005, that vintage was, to me, classic opus. Now, we didn't set out to make that style of wine, we set out to express the the vintage and the place, and it happened to coincide with my idea of what classic opus is. But in 2006, we didn't chase that. We 
made right. what we felt was right the best expression of six, and then on to seven and eight and 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 so um, we're not we're not chasing a style and and not even right. the, what is what we consider to be classic opus. Well, we have a caller. Um, I'm going to bring them on and ask them uh, where they're calling from and who they are. Uh, hi, caller. This is you're on with Michael Salachi from Opus One. What is your name and where are you calling from? Hi, my name is Richard. I want to dip my balls in a glass of wine. Uh, well, there, there you go. Live radio. Uh, <laughs> anything can happen. Sorry about that, Michael. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> just next question. I love this. That's why I love doing this. Um, <laughs> Let's go to... Uh... We could have had a pretty good conversation there. <laughs> <laughs> Should I bring him back on? Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can see if he... <laughs> Come back. <laughs> really? So what was that like? Uh, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit more about that. Uh, okay. Uh, the next question is from... Let's see. Well, um, the wine fella from London, England. And it says, which location that you've visited in the world has the best wines? And I know that's going to be, you know, that's not an easy question to answer. Boy, we could start. We could start off in Burgundy <laughs> with right. with some white Burgundies, and then we could. Well, why not talk about the red Burgundies? And then let's go across the border to Switzerland, and there's some amazing wines coming off those very steep slopes above um, Geneva. And then while we're in Austria, there's some some great Rieslings and uh, Gruner um, Gruners there, and and then the Rieslings mm-hmm. in Mosul. There are great wines everywhere in South right. Africa. You know, um, there's just wonderful wines everywhere. Japan. Um, so I I don't I think I was thinking about this earlier today about scores on wines and and you know the best wine in the world and and all of that. It's just like a um, like a beauty. Who's the most beautiful or handsome person in the world? Right. It's 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 relative, and we all have uh, different perspectives on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it's changing because we evolve and we grow. But I, you know, there I I can I, I love all types of wines. There are some that are uh, disappointing because something happened, but. But all I think are I find interesting, unless there's a, a tremendous flaw. Right. So I, I don't I've need to be wishy-washy or avoid the no, no, question, no. but but I really don't have a, an, an answer. I kind of expected that, and that's you know a lot of people have asked me that same question. So what's your favorite wine? What you know? What do you think is the best wine in the world? And you know every region brings something to a particular varietal um, that is unique to itself. You know, and then you appreciate now, that uniqueness. He called from England, I believe, didn't he? Wasn't that that well, question? No, no, this from question, England? yes, this question was from the wine fellow. This, this is a social media uh, from Instagram from London, England. Yes, the wine fellow. Yes, be, because Stephen Spurrier, who was the decanter man of the year, I think in seven, 2017, he's make he's been making sparkling wine in the south of England, and there's there's really, I mean, wonderful, exciting new wines are popping up everywhere. Yeah. So we have another caller. We'll, we'll take another. Uh, uh, <laughs> you want to take another shot at it? <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay. I'm not shy. All right. 
Uh, <laughs> hi, caller. You're on with Michael Salachi, Opus One. Uh, what is your name and where are you calling? From? Hello? Yes. You're, you're on right, with here's us. Here's a big question. Are you a fan of anal sex? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I was expecting someone had to call in with... Someone had to call with that question, I'm assuming. Uh, well, That's thanks Jay. for your call, and thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Would you let a woman... My gosh. Right. Stu. Yes. <laughs> I, you, you know what? Listen. Now, you told me that there'd be all kinds of questions. I didn't expect these personal questions. I, I, exactly. And, and who would in reality, Michael? And who but... would, exactly. <laughs> I mean, personal you know? questions, yes, but not, not like that. Uh, so we'll move on. I have a question. Actually, this is something I've always wanted to know. Did you ever think of making a white wine equivalent of Opus one? Like a blend of course of different white wines. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. I brought it up, uh, before and we've had some really fun conversations around it. You know, really the Opus is based on, uh, on Mr. Madavi and Baron Philippe's vision of making one wine and, and we have talked about making a white wine. I thought it'd be really cool to make a Beatles white album wine. The label would be white and embossed, and you'd have to hold it at an angle to be able to read uh, the, the 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 name and see the the silhouette. And it would be a Napa Valley white wine, and it would be a blend of Sauvignon Blanc as a base, and maybe Muscadel and and um, and some Semillon. Uh, there's a really wonderful vineyard. Uh, nearby that has great semillon, but alas, it's not something we're going to do. I I, I thought it would be really great to have that for um, Opus One wine dinners, but um, we we do um, focus on just making Opus One the the red wine made from Bordeaux varieties. Right, right. Yeah, I I, I would imagine I could have thought somewhere down the line that would have been something that would have come up. Someone would have said, "Hey, you know, you know, we're we're this good." doing red wine in Bordeaux style. Why don't we, you know, take a crack at it? Let's just see what, what, what comes up, you know? And that actually sounds what you had just mentioned. Like a great marketing idea. I think that would have, I think it would have gone over really, really well. Um, I'm just putting my two cents Maybe. in for if down the road, you know? Uh, let's see. So the next question here is from, uh, Katarina, the Katarina Anderson of Florence, Italy, and it says, which has been the biggest challenge as well as the biggest reward in working with producing Opus One? The 2010 vintage was, um, it was the biggest challenge because it was a, a year with, it was, it was wet. We left more leaves on the vines to take up the moisture in the, in the lower horizons of the soil we had a lot of uh, changing uh, weather, cool, then warm, then hot. And um, it was like being in an Aikido match with Mother Nature, trying to channel her, whatever she sent our way, into something positive. And it, uh, it, it's pretty much my favorite vintage, vintage since I've been here. So that mm -hmm. was the most challenging from a vintage perspective. The, from a... From a Overall perspective, it's uh, the biggest challenges and reward is working with people, giving people opportunities to exceed their own expectations and watching people grow and being a part of our team. That's the biggest uh, challenge to, to help them understand uh, 
that they can do that, and we will we will uh, we encourage it. And then the reward is when they pull off amazing things. So yeah, people. That's great. Um, the next is from Simon McMillan from New South Wales, Australia. And he says, is there a wine destination on your bucket list that you haven't visited yet? Yes. Um, Uruguay. <laughs> I'd like okay. to go there. Is um, there a reason in Peru? In Peru. Yeah. Philippe Delawin, who is the, um, uh, the winemaker at Mouton, uh, he spent mm-hmm. the first few years of his career in Peru, and um, I think it'd be a beautiful place to to visit and to see what actually they're doing with with uh, grapevines and wine. Interesting. Uh, okay, let's move on here. So we've got uh, the next question is from uh, actually this is one I want to I'd like to ask you uh, when you're not drinking California wines, what is your go-to wine? Champagne. Okay. I love champagne. Um, Any particular? I mean, I'm not, you don't um, have to. There's so many. I love Krug is really a, a beautiful champagne with some, um, you know, some some uh, f- barrel fermentation. So it has different dimensions. Pierre right. Peters, um, Rudolf Pierre mm-hmm. Peters is making fantastic wines. Um, Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon at Roterer is making a beautiful, beautiful wines. There's so many great champagnes. Um, right. And Premier Cru, I mean, you're, you're not just not just Grand Cru, correct? Yeah, Premier Cru, um, um, right. non-vintage, um, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you know, there's one we discovered recently um, is the Beelcart Extra Brut. Oh, it's, I love I love is, that. And the only place I could find it is in Whole Foods in Napa. Um, it's just such a beautiful wine. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have a question that I, I would like to know. Do you think people in the United States under-decant or over-decant their wines? And that's something that I've, I've debated with people before. I'd say in general they over-decant. Um, I, mm-hmm. I like to, when we... Um, we have a glass of wine, or have a, open a bottle of wine. I like to have the if I if it's a young wine. It, now an older wine it should be decanted if you suspect there's a, a some deposit. But short of that, a young wine. So I like the the server just to to kind of hold it up a little bit higher from the uh, from the top of the glass and kind of splash it in, give it a little air that way. I like to watch the wine right. open up and evolve in the glass. Yeah. I actually agree on that. I mean, I, I do like decanting and using a decanter and all, um, but I just, there's something to me, uh, I've always said this, and this is, uh, you, you've heard me a million times say this, anyone that's met me or on the radio. So wine being alive, the beauty of it is, mm-hmm. is that, you know, you open it up and you pour it into the glass and you sip on it and it tastes one way and you wait 20 minutes, 25 minutes, tastes completely different. And then you, let's say you pair that with, Food, again, completely different. Um, and some of the wines like, you know, Diamond Creek that you may need to decant or open up for like 24 hours before you drink it. Uh, it it's just interesting that it evolves the way it evolves. And that's why I like it per se, evolving in the glass as, a, as opposed to, you know, decanting it particularly in a, in a decanter because you get to experience the different 
uh, evolution of uh, of the wine. You know, the different different tastes at different points, and you know, and at, during your conversation or at a party or whatever it may be, it's like, oh, isn't it, doesn't this taste? Can you believe what this tastes like from you know mm-hmm. half an hour ago? I mean, it's just totally different, you know. So that's just something that I've noticed that I've I, I appreciate, and you know, kind of um, adding to your point. Um, there's have another you made any fun changes? thing. Good. Uh, there's another quickly okay. another fun thing about decanting. Sometimes people, you can tell they really want to experience. It's part of the part of the um, the ambience or the experience to do that. But one thing that's kind of fun to do is to pour a glass of wine and then decant the other half of the bottle so that people can mm-hmm. actually learn, you know, should this wine have been decanted or not? And everyone has their own um, um, opinion on that. So oh, yeah. that's a way for it to che- teach people why you should or should not decant in a, in a given case. Right, right. Um, so I have a question here from, um, let's see. Uh, is this from, yeah, okay. So this is from uh, Lionel Tonnerot of Bordeaux, France. He asks, what satisfies you more in your work life? People's reactions in their eyes tasting your wine, scores, or the ability to leave a legacy behind? It's a pretty interesting question. That's a great question. Um, I would have to go with um, how the look in people's eyes when when they taste it. And that's also right. true of when you um, are are working with people and <clears throat> they're learning new things. I remember we had these two young interns in 2003 who were um, walking through the vineyard, assessing vines, and they 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 um, we gave them criteria, uh, we gave them stages to look for, and they they ended up actually two people um, assessing two almost 270,000 grapevines. Now they were wow. they had been to school they were studying they hadn't finished yet they didn't have a lot of experience but when they were done 8 weeks after they began uh with this uh vine assessment looking in their eyes two young women had it, it was like looking in the eyes of two wise old women from a viticultural perspective they really understood what they uh, viticulture from a different um, from anything they'd ever learned in a book. Those, you know, right. so what his question about looking in somebody's eyes, whether it's um, in, in an example like that, where people really, oh, voila, you know, or um, I, I, they learned something or there's a revelation or tasting a wine that really moves them. Right. Kind of like you were saying, like kind of like an aha moment where you go, ah, yeah. okay, that's what this is all about. This is why I'm I'm doing what I'm doing. <laughs> this mm-hmm. this wine yeah. pretty much speaks to me in in that fashion. Um, let's say we have another uh, we have another question here. Um, uh, this is actually from Christy Norman, uh, the Sam for Spago restaurant in Beverly Hills, uh, and it says I have a lot of requests for Opus. If it's on my list, people will pay a lot to drink it. What vintages in the last decade are for you more approachable now that's uh thank you christy from spago yes thank you christy um i think seven is really now starting to shed its baby fat and and you're getting a lot of tertiary aromas and it's the it's really starting to show well typically um our wines when you you can you can start to enjoy them 
when they're released, which is three years uh, after after the harvest on October 1st. Um, and you can watch them evolve. I mean, they're they're approachable then. But I I find after about uh, eight to ten to twelve years, you really start to see the wine go to a a, a different level. And um, there's so many more nuances and layers that that are revealed at that time. Right. Um, let's see. I'm missing this question from. Another Londoner, I think we have here. Uh, it's the English wine guy, and he asked, "If you could bring a new grape into California, what would it be and why?" That's kind of an interesting question. A new grape into California. Because you, well, and then, and let me just qualify that. It, you know, in essence, it would have to be something that could grow in, in yes. the Valley or Sonoma, you know. You know, there's some. Um, Great varieties in Portugal, I think, that would do well in certain parts of Napa. And actually, there's a fellow, Manuel Pires, who, um, Gandana, uh, mm-hmm. he's making Cabernet mostly with Philippe Melka as his winemaker. And I think he has a winemaker on site as well. But he has some uh, Portuguese varieties that I find very interesting. Um, so that's already here, maybe more of that. And mm-hmm. and maybe that would be something, uh, since he said California, maybe up in uh, Dry Creek would be a, where where they I'm make sure. some beautiful cells. Uh, maybe some of the Portuguese varieties would do well there, and that'd be fun to to work on. Um, Definitely, I mean, uh, you know, the the interesting thing is is, is um, I, I find, you know, when you bring a, a, a grape variety that is, let's say, uh, indigenous to. Um, for argument's sake, Italy, Puglia, uh, Primitivo. Uh, now, naturally, I, one knows that Zinfandel comes from that, red Zinfandel comes from that. But when you do an actual Primitivo in California, it, it, it's interesting how, it, how different it tastes in comparison to a red Zinfandel as well as, from California as well as a Primitivo from, from Italy. And uh, I, I always marvel at the fact that when someone asks a question like that, it, it, you, I, I think the expectation of what people are thinking is um, it's going to taste the way it did in the country of origin. And, you know, you're just going to make it available here or it's just going to grow here. I, I, I always get that feeling when I talk to people and say, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could have this particular grape varietal mm-hmm. here? I know it doesn't grow uh, and it's not indigenous to California, but, you know, and I think it's with the expectation that it's going to taste like the country of origins uh, terroir, and and you know, un- unfortunately, I don't think <laughs> that is always going to be the case. Um, no, let's just you know another uh, yes. another variety would be Torrentes 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 from oh, Argentina. Sure. That w- yes. that would make like that bridal. would be in California. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and do you? I was going to ask. Do you cons? I mean, obviously, you can't. Con- you do consult with other winemakers. I mean, is there like here's the, here's the question I have always wanted to know: Is there another wine Michael Salachi on the horizon? I don't. I don't mean a uh, clone that we're going to find out about. <laughs> You've been hiding, but I mean, I mean an actual you know someone winemaker that's up and coming that you say you know this is somebody to watch. Boy, um, you know, there's um, there's a lot of young people in Napa and in France um, 
uh, and in and actually in South Africa that are, I think are are going that are great already. And it's you know to think of right. somebody who's coming out of the blocks who's not making wines that's a little bit um, more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an intern here named um, 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 Meredith uh, McGough, who okay. um, he's she worked with us several different times and worked in Oregon, worked in New Zealand and Australia. I think um, she has tremendous potential, um, and and she's still you know doing internships and well not internships but she's still doing different things but hasn't had full control over um, winemaking and viticulture yet. But I think when she does, she's going to do a great job. She was most recently um, enologist at Screaming Eagle. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there's someone, Jean D'Angelois, who I always knew would be, he was just waiting to, to bust through, and, and you know now he's at Clermione doing amazing things. So. Yeah, there's a, I love that wine, by the way. I have to tell you, Claire Mignon is, for me, spectacular French wine. Um, so this one is from Wines of Nestle of Nova Scotia, Canada. And their question is, have you made any changes in Opus One in viticulture management and or in winemaking in the last years to adapt to the changes in the weather of California? Yes, we um, started actually in 2001 when I arrived to increase the interval between irrigations and give more water at one time, at one uh, like one irrigation. And we the idea was to um, uh, let the vines stress a little bit and um, and then give them a good dose of water that would then lure the roots down into the deeper horizon, deeper layers of the soil, so that they would eventually become more self-sufficient. And we'll, uh, we don't fertilize, so, and actually, um, so that irrigation uh, techniques uh, worked. We were actually uh, dry farming in 2007 and 8, but um, it was too difficult to maintain that. It was too hard on the vine, so we when we go back to very timely irrigations and we're giving the first year I was here, we reduced water use, the amount of water we gave to the vines by 45%. Um, so that, that's been a, a um, something we've been working on. We hedge a little bit earlier, right during flowering to encourage, encourage the um, lateral shoots to grow so that we can get, keep some of the ones along in the cluster zone to act as little sun umbrellas to protect the fruit from, from direct sunlight um, we give water to the plants unless right now we're having we're we're getting rain and right. bud breaks um, going to be in a couple of weeks. Um, but if we it hadn't rained, we would give put some water on the soil to release nitrogen from the soil, make it available to the to the plants. We don't fertilize. Right. Um, we pick at night. Uh, we um, we pick from three in the morning till nine o'clock in the morning to avoid. Um, shrinkage or, or dehydration of the fruit, which would increase the sugar concentration and finally the alcohol concentration. Right. Um, so we're constantly adapting. Mm-hmm. We isolated wild yeast from each of our four estate vineyards so that we could have a further expression of place. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're using maybe the only native California yeast in winemaking that exists. 
through that program. Really? We call I, it the I, squirrel I, I, because we isolated it off of an oak tree, a sappy part of an oak tree with a piece of scotch tape. <laughs> and grew it up, tested it, and it's it's we call it the squirrel because it came from an oak tree. But right, it's, well, um, was that accidental? It, no, it was oh, purposeful. It we, okay, yeah. We had two interns who were I said, Go f- see if you can find they knew what uh, the, when the project started we were looking for to isolate wild yeast from our vineyards and they took it to the boundaries of the vineyard. Uh we started out with um the first time fifty and narrowed it down to six and then to three. And then we um so we call the one pure wild yeast we call the wolf. And then we have a coyote. That's a yeast that has some components, LL, it's similar to um, a, a commercial yeast from the Rhone. And then we have um, the, the, the owl, the Chouette, um, which is another wild yeast uh, that was first isolated in that first go-around out of the 50. And then we have, I just mentioned, the squirrel from the oak tree. And we have one we call um, the bull terroir because it was isolated from a keg that had a bunch of juice in it. And I mm-hmm. went from, in my head, from a keg to Spuds, to Budweiser to Spuds McKenzie to a bull terrier. And then our South African intern mislabeled it last year as bull terroir instead of bull terrier. So <laughs> we call it the bull terroir now. So That's great. Yeah, there's lots of things we've been doing to, to try to... To do with what what the um, what was asked, right? Um, so I have this question from Steve McConnell of I want to say is it Avila Beach, California? I'm gonna mm-hmm. go with that because I would think with two L's it would Central be Avila. Yes, and his was um, how has the modern wine consumer's desire for clean fruit forward wine affected the seller seller practices at Opus One in the past two decades? Again, not not really. Uh, it hasn't really affected us because um, you, you, our wines are going to have some aspect of fruit, mm-hmm. and we're not looking for a real fruit. We're not looking for something over, over, overly fruity. We've got right. to have other aspects. You've got to have herbal notes, uh, spicy notes. You have to have a whole um, palette of aromas and flavors because fruit is going to go. You know, those fresh, those, those bright fruit flavors are going to go away eventually. And they're going to become other things. And so, if you start out with something balanced and complex, it's going to going to age a little bit um, more gracefully. But right. we, we really haven't. We've been pursuing expression of our place and an expression of the given uh, season, uh, so that people we're not making we're not trying to make a style of wine that's repeatable that we make we pursue every year. We're, other than the fact we're trying to make whatever uh, that year. Whatever, however, we interpret that you're working with, um, with, with nature. Um, so that doesn't influence us too much. We, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that we we um, export 52% of our wine outside the United States, and in 100 different countries. So we can't make something that's geared towards a specific critic or 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 um, palate. It it has to be something that will go with with food you know because that's why people drink wine yeah most importantly it's kind of interesting you know i i i I find it's there i'm not to 
compartmentalize or categorize per se wines, but um, you know, I find there are some that are just great sippers, plain and simple. I mean, I wouldn't pair it with food, but I could sit there and if I I could drink that, it's just uh, um, so approachable and so accessible um, that food would not. I, I I don't think that it would make the food any better or complement the food, and I don't think vice versa. And then you have wines that are that are just so phenomenal with food. Uh, they're just so great. And you, it's like you scratch your head. It's the same grape varietal, per se, or it's the same similar blend. And yet, you know, one winemaker makes it uh, accessible only to just sipping it, and the other one gets it and can make it, you know, uh, food-friendly. And I, I always wondered how, how that, you know, how that is the case. Or, you know, you're in the same place. You know, you're, you're, you're producing the same style of wine or the same varietal. How is it that within the same basic price point, too, it's not like it's, well, we're talking about a $10 wine versus a $100 wine. I just never understood how someone could, one person could be that far off as far as doing that because, you know, and, and, and want it to only be, let's say, this is something that you just sit and sip and enjoy. Um, you when, know, as you just mentioned, you know about food. You know, some some people, some winemakers um don't want to leave any fingerprints on the glass or footprints in the vineyard. Uh mm-hmm. others, you know, leave ruts and smudges all over the glass. So, it's just, you know, do you <laughs> do you place. want to do you want to uh, allow the place to because if you think think about it, most places, you know, is in Europe in Bordeaux in Burgundy, right. these are these are wineries and vineyards that have been producing wines for hundreds of years. Um, if you step back and you look at a one or two hundred year timeline, you're not going to notice the twenty or thirty or forty years that one person was there. And so the idea is to what's more important, the the, the human or the place? Right. And and I think it's the place. We have a we have a responsibility to first of all. Um, um, make wines that tell you where and when they came from. And we also have a responsibility to leave that land in better condition and shape than we found it. We're, you know, we're stewards. So right. um, I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And, no, good. I didn't want to stop you before you were going to say anything else as well. No, no. And then, and then I just think that when, um, the people who are trying to, and I'm not talking about minimalist winemaking where you're not helping the wine at all or not doing anything. I'm talking about this being a part of terroir, the human part of terroir that holds it, all those elements together. And, 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 and those are the wines that are going to be more likely, I assume, to go with food either of that region or of many places. Right. So the, the last question I have here is from Kate uh, Truscott from Johannesburg, South Africa, and she asks, so what factors in the wine production process drives up the final price of Opus One? Um, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> you know, with most most um, artwork or, or wines or, or restaurants or whatever, it's going to be um, a supply versus demand um, thing, right. and uh, I, I know if we looked at just our 
production co- I think maybe that's what she's getting at. What what do we do that drives up the price? We yeah, I, uh, I would say the most Im- most important thing would be the the attention to detail we spend and uh, the focus we have. So, you know, we have um uh, teams of people um that are that are really looking at different aspects of the of making wine. Some people are very good at racking the wines very cleanly. Others are very good at draining, draining and pressing and putting the right people um, in each of those positions to, to, do, to be successful and mm-hmm. giving them all the tools they need to be successful. Um, I think the support we give to people and the support we give to the wines probably are, are what drives our production costs up the most. Well, and and I guess in in way of saying it as well is the the attention to detail from the vine to the bottle, everything in between, and every step of the of the process. Um, I think that I think that's why it has um, been the uh, as I said at the beginning of, at the top of the of the interview, kind of the golden standard in a sense. I mean, if I'm correct, and I remember hearing this, when Opus One first came out, it was the first basic premium American wine in that you were charging somewhere around $50 retail for it at the time? It was a $50 bottle of wine, correct? Right, and when no one was paying $50 for a bottle of American wine. You know, that yes, that's true. So um, the other thing was Stu Harrison, uh, who was sales and marketing marketing um came up with the 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 idea of the wine by the glass and so you could taste a glass of opus i don't remember how much it was 20 dollars mm-hmm. or whatever but there right. was a little carafe and two glasses of uh, etched glasses and you you got the glasses and you got to uh, to taste this wine so making it ex- it was still expensive but it making it accessible to people so they could see what it was all about um but yeah, Which is important uh, because I, most people don't get a chance to um, maybe try uh, an Opus One. And I think that mindset has changed over the course of time um, with people's um, learning and education about wine here in the United States. So I think that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, we're at the end of the show tonight. I, I, I could go on for another couple of hours, literally, asking you questions. Um, and I, I want to say that first, thank you very much, Michael, for returning to my show as our featured guest. Um, I really appreciate that. Uh, you're doing an amazing job for a great company. And, uh, and I just want to, I'm, I'm really happy that I got a chance talk have my and have my listeners uh really get an insight into what makes uh you tick per se and what makes opus one so thank you very much for that i really appreciate it you're very welcome i i appreciate the invitation to participate um on your show it's it's fun and and i and i like the you know it's not a, every day you never know what's going to happen and your <laughs> interviews are like that exactly <laughs> Good reflection of life. Can I just say, I'm glad you took it that way and not <laughs> the possible way someone who might have been in your shoes, who could have been extremely insulted. Like, what kind of show is this? 
you know, well, you know, Jane, get me off this thing, you know. Uh, so uh, I want to say continued success to to you and Opus One, and and want to thank thank you again for for coming on. Appreciate it. Same to you, Steve. Stu, thank you. Thank you again. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. So that was Michael Salachi of Opus One. That's the show for tonight. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's listening in, who uh, gave me questions via Instagram. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, the callers were the callers. Uh, can't do anything about that. But anyway, uh, so if you want to know about upcoming shows, uh, just go to my Instagram page. Uh, or my wine, uh, my website, www.stewthewineguru.com. Uh, I'm always updating everybody on Instagram, so follow me there at Stu the Wine Guru or on Twitter at Stu the Wine Guru. Um, you can also, if you want, listen to this show. This will be available on iTunes within the next 24 hours, or you can listen uh, via um, BlogTalkRadio.com forward slash Stu the Wine Guru. And that's our show. I really appreciate it. Thank you to all. And as I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stu the Wine Guru. Drink up.